Top of the time, tea time. Yeah, this is tea time. Yeah, making a difference. One cup at a time. So be sure to grab your tea, grab a seat, and tune in to Miss Liz. Tea time, making a difference. One cup at a time. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to Tea Time. That's right, it's Tea Time with Miss Liz again. And I have an incredible guest in the studio. Today I have Dr. Kevin J. Payne in the studio. So I'm just gonna show, share a little video on who Kevin, Dr. Kevin Payne is. And then I'll do the disclaimer and his bio and then we'll have a good old cup of tea and have a good old discussion on chronic pain, fear, MS, skydiving. That's right, we're doing all of it today on Tea Time. So I'm just going to drop in a little bit on who Dr. Kevin Payne is. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And that's a little bit on who we have in the studio today. So I'm going to drop in Dr. Kevin and I'm going to do the disclaimer and then we're going to have a good old cup of tea and just spill that good news. So, Ms. Liz's disclaimer, before leaving a comment or um, a statement, please allow StreamYard the permission to put the comment in by allowing permission to StreamYard.com. Please be advised that content brought forward for any tea time that is hosted by myself, Ms. Liz, is always brought forward with good faith, however, may bring dialogue and opinions that are not representative of my platform. All Tea Time guests and audience participants are responsible for using their good judgment and taking any action that may relate to the discussion. The content brought forward may include discussion for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to know that this show is engaging in discussions form only to offer inspire and inspire awareness and connection and is providing not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about this disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, Miss Liz, at my email at bookiemisslizgmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in this show in any aspect, I myself, Miss Liz, welcomes you. And should you decide that the show is not meant for you at this time, I respect that and I will see you in a future show. Now, I want to introduce Dr. Kevin J. Payne. A little bit on Kevin. Dr. Kevin J. Payne is a social psychologist, my tongue again, entrepreneur, author, and skydiver, and he's doing it all with MS. When he lost everything he cared about, he decided to rebuild his life by facing the fear of his uncooperative body in the air and becoming a skydiver. 600 jumps later and counting, he has his home in the sky. From, born from a decade of research, your life lives well. 
Now I'm going to get Kevin to share a little bit more on what he, what he does and all of that good stuff. And we will have a good old cup of tea today and spill the tea. So Dr. Kevin Payne, thank you for joining me in the studio. And my tongue does that. It just plays all these tricks sometimes. Uh, we'll get into that a little later in the show, why it does that. Um, but if you could share with the listeners and viewers out there a little bit on who you are and what you do. Well, first, Liz, I'm delighted to be here, so thank you for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty typical guy, I guess, in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy. I happen to live with a neurodegenerative condition, multiple sclerosis, uh, and it is a <clears throat> sometimes difficult and confusing beast, but. Uh, Part of what I'm interested in is helping to raise awareness of uh, how we can give, you know, how we can live good lives, even though we're stuck with health conditions that are never going to go away and that are always going to be a challenge to us. So I happen to, you know, I'm the wrong kind of doctor to find a medical cure. So. <clears throat> I focus on the psycho and social parts of the biopsychosocial model. And we know that two thirds of our health outcomes are, are not due to biomedical factors. They're due to cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social and environmental factors. And those are all something that we can do something about, even though sometimes it's very difficult in their own rights. Uh, those are still things that that we can influence and so uh, that's my message and that's my mission and and i'm i'm helping to i'm helping people understand that it's not just a, a list of medical signs and symptoms that you're facing that there is so much more to it than that and that that is natural and that is very human and you are not alone well, and, and a lot of people don't understand that the, the understanding of the neurological illnesses, right? Uh, yeah. And the, the mental state of it as well that comes with it. And, and the reason I wanted to have you on the show was to explain a little bit more of the understanding of the, the mind. And, and uh, here we go. My, my thoughts and that are rushing today. So my tongue, my, my thoughts are faster than my tongue is. So my tongue is like, so it's almost in respect to what you're speaking on. Um, I myself was, I, years ago, they, they diagnosed me with MS and then later they diagnosed me with conversion disorder. So now they're going back to it might be MS. So it's that back and forth trial, right? Because my body shuts down and it, it, it acts weird. It, in my speech at time, my sight, I fall, I tumble. Mm -hmm. The understanding of it, uh, Dr. Payne, is how do we get that awareness out there for people to understand the difference between a neurological illness and um, a physical, like the, uh, the words I'm looking for is not coming to me today. Uh, well, maybe let me, let me speak a little bit about what multiple sclerosis is, and, yeah. and that may help people have some understanding here. So <clears throat> multiple sclerosis is one of those conditions that almost everybody has heard of, 
but we really don't know exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. That's and, where I wanted to go with this. <laughs> and and there's no reason for people to know what it is because it doesn't really affect most of us directly. However, MS is one of the most common rare diseases. So in the United States, for example, there are currently about a million people diagnosed with some form of multiple sclerosis. Worldwide, it's about 2.8 million people. So it is still a rare disease, but there are a lot of us running around with it. <clears throat> well, a lot of the us best way... misdiagnosed as well, right? Because that's a, that well, was it is. that yeah. you went through, right? Yeah, and, and because, and, and I'll, I'll get into that in just a second here when I, when I talk about that, and that's part of my story as well. So multiple sclerosis is a chronic neurodegenerative autoimmune condition. So let me unpack that. What does that mean? So it's chronic. Technically, a chronic illness is any illness that's going to last at least three months, and it may last forever. And in the case of multiple sclerosis, despite what some well-intentioned people in your life might have told you, there is no cure, period, full stop. There is no cure. And uh, that means that it's something that we're going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. Now, I certainly hope that uh, medical science comes through in my lifetime and, and finds a way to cure this. But I still have to live a good life in the meantime, and I can't hang all my hopes waiting for something that may never happen. And that's really where your life lived well was born. So it's chronic. It's neurodegenerative. So what do I mean by that? A neurodegenerative condition, and there are lots of them. Uh, so not only multiple sclerosis, but things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's syndrome, uh, ALS, atrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, there, there are many, many of them. And what that means is somehow our, our central nervous system, our brain and our spinal cord and optic nerves are degrading. So... Within the term multiple sclerosis, the word sclerosis literally means scars. Oh. That's, and, and so multiple sclerosis means many scars. And that is how we are diagnosed. We find that if you look on an MRI now, uh, you will find that there are these ghostly pale regions in the MRI that are the scars that are the leftovers of our system trying to repair itself after a multiple sclerosis attack. And if those are active flares, they will show up under contrast in the MRIs as these bright white spots. So what happens then is, and now I need to, to introduce the third part of my definition there, it's autoimmune. And this is something that we didn't realize even when I was finally diagnosed in 2006. So it's, it's pretty recent. And one of the things that we've been finding in the past couple of decades 
is that a lot of illnesses that have been with us for a long time, as we are now starting to unpack what's actually causing them, is that they are autoimmune. So rheumatoid arthritis, for example, lupus, for another example. And, and there are well over 100 autoimmune conditions now. And so what that means is, in the case of multiple sclerosis, at some time in my past, I got, and this is, you know, we're not 100% certain on this, but this is the most likely medical explanation according to the science as we now understand it. So at some point, my system was exposed to some kind of probably viral infection that is really normal and that my system fought off just like everybody else's does. One of the leading contenders here right now is, and there have been there was a new study that was published a couple of months ago that, that lent some more uh, credence to this, was the Epstein-Barr virus. And I personally think that what we're going to find with MS is there are possibly multiple viral triggers. Now, 95% of all humans right now on the planet are carrying the Epstein-Barr virus. And most people, when they get it, they get, they're exposed to it very early in their childhood, and it's a very mild case. They may be asymptomatic. It may be mistaken for uh, a case of the cold or the flu, and they fight it off, and they go on with their lives. Now, if you don't get the Epstein-Barr virus when you're young, if you get it later on in your teens, as some of us do, and as I did, then the symptoms can be very serious. And we get what's called mononucleosis. And I had a really bad case of mono that kept me completely bedridden for seven weeks the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. And the point here is that we get a normal infection. Our body fights it off. But because of some kind of genetic proclivity, it causes our immune system to become confused. And it starts attacking a part of our own body. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, in the case of MS, it begins attacking the myelin, which is this fatty sheath that surrounds many of the neurons in our brain and spinal cord. Just like the insulation around a wire in our house, well, if that insulation gets degraded or scraped away, then the wire short circuits, right? Yep. And that's what's happening in our central nervous system. And then as our body tries to repair itself, well, we, we, we can't completely repair that kind of damage. And so we get those scars that form. So, so with multiple sclerosis, the symptoms that we experience, and, and MS is often called a snowflake disease because no two cases are exactly alike. You can, I, I will talk to you about my symptoms, but my symptoms can be very different than somebody else's because it's attacking our central nervous system. And everything we do think, feel, say, hope, dream, plan, fear, whatever, happens to pass through our central nervous system. And depending on where that damage is 
and what kind of signals that area is processing and what parts of our system get inflamed during these immune system attacks. Well, that's where that's that determines the kind of symptoms that we experience. So I have many symptoms that are very common for MS. For example, I'm, I'm always in pain. So I have chronic pain. I have chronic fatigue. I'm always tired. The best I ever get is tired. So mm-hmm. medically, awake, tired, fatigued, exhausted are qualitatively different states. And as we, <clears throat> most people who are healthy begin the day after a good night's sleep fully awake. And by the end of the day, they're maybe tired. And if it's been a really taxing day, they may be right over the border into fatigue. But the best I do with a good night's sleep, and I am religious about it, I I get good night's sleep. The best I can do is wake up pretty tired the next morning. So if I wake up my version of refreshed the next day, it will be similar to a healthy person who has already spent maybe 16 or 18 hours up on a demanding day. So by the time I get to the end of my day, I'm medically fatigued. And if I don't watch it and I push myself too far, I'm medically exhausted. And exhaustion is a dangerous condition to be in. So you have to become very respectful of your limits. So yeah, I have chronic pain, I have chronic fatigue, I have chronic confusion, cogvog, as we call it in the MS community often. And so sometimes I, I have to search for my thoughts and words, and it takes me a little longer to get there. Uh, I, I usually do get there, but but sometimes it's a lot more effort to do that. It's almost like a climbing like a ladder, right? <clears throat> you know the thought, you know what you want yeah. to say, but it's like it doesn't want to come out, and it doesn't want to release it, you know it's like it almost doesn't like step i look at it as trying to navigate my way through a crowded smoky room at twilight and yeah. i'm i'm bumping into other thoughts and i'm trying to recognize the thought that i'm, <laughs> Which I'm one looking needs to for come out, right yeah, yeah exactly and and so you know i deal with that i have uh, persistent leg issues so i can i can still walk uh, and and I generally am fine with that until I get really tired. So when I get really tired, then my balance starts going and my legs can, can get a little sketchy. If I get too warm or especially if I get too cold, my legs can go spastic. Uh, but I always have numbness, especially below my knees. And so that's, that's kind of the, oh, and I always itch and have parathesias. That was actually like the bugs fr- on you, right? Yeah, or or in my case, uh, like tingling, like if you've laid on a limb for too long and it's gone to sleep, and those tingles can become random electric shocks, or feel like uh, sometimes they feel like electric hornets stinging my body, and that is actually the one symptom that appeared in the first batch of symptoms back in 1989 for me. And it is the one thing that has never disappeared. I have always itched for every waking moment of the last 
30, almost, you know, three years. And, 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 and that is mind bogglingly annoying. <laughs> just it, think it, about it. I it mean, like because you can't scratch it. You can't do anything about it. Yeah. You can't scratch it or anything like that because it's neural damage. Yeah. So I've, I've had to learn how to ignore it. Uh, just like I've had to learn how to ignore pain. Uh, and, and so, you know, for me, that's been a lot of years of meditation and exercise and cognitive reframing uh, so that I can uh, just kind of put those in the back of my mind and not get distracted by them and, and still get what I want out of my day. And then on top of all those, I've got another 30 symptoms that come and go. Wow. So, so that's life with MS for me. And, but somebody else will sit here and describe their life with MS, and there may be some similarities. Some of those really common ones, the numbness, the leg issues, pain, fatigue, cog fog, those are, are very, very common. And then, you know, there are other weird symptoms that, that uh, just have more to do with the specific places in my brain or spinal cord that have been damaged. Yeah. So where the scars are. Mm-hmm. So why do you think so many people are misdiagnosed with MS? <clears throat> because it's really difficult to, to get a handle on. The diagnosis of MS is, uh, I, I mean, first, you know, we can't just open somebody up and, and stare into their, their white matter and, and see what's going on there. And so when I was first symptomatic, for example, 1989, I was 20 years old. And uh, back then, they did not associate multiple sclerosis with someone that young. Now we understand that MS probably is around for a long time and starts earlier for many people than we used to think. But back then they didn't. So I had, I had balance issues. I had the itching and I had, uh, uh, I felt really fatigued and I felt confused. And I was, I was a young man in a demanding honors program in college. And I went to the university physician and I think he fixated on what he expected to hear from a young man in that position. And he said, oh, you're depressed. And sent me to a psychiatrist. And I was referred to the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, yes, this is major depression. Here are some drugs. <laughs> and the drugs didn't work. And yeah. he said, here are some different drugs. And the drugs didn't work. And he said, here are some different drugs. And those didn't work. And so he said, your case is treatment resistant which of course is the medical establishment's way of saying, we give up, you're on your own. Yeah. So a few months later, I was back to normal. And I went on with my life and, and kept going. And then a couple of years later, some symptoms were back. And of course, I already had my answer by this point. It was my wacky depression. So I just gutted through it. And a few months later, I was back to normal. And a few years later, had another spell again, but it was worse. Uh, the symptoms were worse. And 
I actually gained 120 pounds. Wow. In two years, I went from a 27 inch waist to barely squeezing into a 46 inch pant. No way. Yeah, way, way. I got pictures. Wow. And, and, uh, I was like, wow. And then, and then like one morning I woke up and I went to the bathroom and I look at myself in the mirror. It was like the, I had seen myself for the first time in a long time. And I said, oh my gosh, I look like the guy who swallowed Kevin. Wow. And, and the symptoms had passed and I went back to my old habits. And over the next two years, I lost 120 pounds again. And went back to you know my normal size, and I've been that size. You can see, I'm not a big guy. Uh, you know, I've, I've I've kept it there for the last 20 years. But uh, that was the next one. And then in 2002, I got a new symptom. For the first time, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. It was just gone. Now. I'm still a young guy. I'm in my 30s. And, and I think, oh, I probably overdid my workout the day before and pinched a nerve. And a few days later, it was back to normal. I could feel my leg again. And then it was gone. And then it was back. And then it was gone. And then it was back. And then one morning, I woke up. And, and it, it started becoming different parts of my body. So one part of my body would be gone, and then it would be back. And then I woke up one morning and I could feel my right arm and my head, but wow. the rest of my body had disappeared. And at that point, my then wife said, I'm putting my foot down. You're going to go get this looked at. And so I did. And then at one point uh, during this, you know, so my, my GP referred me to a neurologist and uh, who specialized in MS. And we, we did the first round of tests. Remember, this is the early 2000s. And so MRIs still did not have the kind of resolution that they have today. And we did a first round of MRIs and I did other tests and they said, well, you will be delighted to know it'll be a big relief that this is not multiple sclerosis. And I was like, Whew. and then he said, but we've got this brand new MRI in the region and this is the first time, you know, this is, this is a better resolution than we've ever had before. So I'm going to schedule you for that. My office will get in touch with you if there's anything you need to know. Otherwise, come back in three months and we'll try something else. So I did the MRI. I didn't hear from his office. I thought for a long time, you know, I'd probably just cancel the appointment because I wasn't getting any information. And so I finally did. I, I said, okay, I'll go. And, and so I went in and he comes in with this large file. And that tells you how long ago it was right now because yeah. he had a big paper file. And, and, and so he comes in, he says his pleasantries and sits down across from him. He starts flipping through the file and then he stopped cold. And then he did a wild eyed double take at the file. Now, you never want your neurologist to no, do a wild you never do. <laughs> and he looked up, and he, and he looked kind of sheepish, and he said, excuse me, I've got to go check something. I'll be right back. And he just rushed out of the room, leaving me. You, ne there. you never want that to happen either. <laughs> no. And 
this is like the longest five minutes of my life. And, and he comes back in and he's kind of slumped over and he slumps in front of me and he looks me in the eye and he says, I'm so sorry. And again, you'd never want your neurologist no. to do that. He said, but he said, my office should have gotten in touch with you. There is no doubt that it's MS and it's been in your system for a long time. Now, now, all the times that you had it come back and go away, uh, uh -huh. for me, they diagnosed me at 26 with MS. Then at 31, they were like, it's conversion disorder because all the tests are coming back normal and there's no signs of anything mm -hmm. and there's no movement. We can't understand why you're falling and why you're tripping and, you know, why your vision is going, your speech is going. Uh, so there was a lot of in and out. It was back and forth. Okay, it's MS. No, it's conversion disorder. No, it's MS. Now it's conversion disorder. Now it's back to it might be MS again. And there's a certain range of age limit that they say that then before people can di be diagnosed, um, there's like an age range of 45 to 65 to be diagnosed. Is there a, a way of getting diagnosed before that age? Oh yeah, it's it's very common nowadays. Right? I was I was in my early mid 30s when I was diagnosed, uh, and so it's as I said there there. The, the medical forefront of thinking about multiple sclerosis has moved a long way. But you got to understand, you know, when, when, when professionals get their medical training, they get a couple of hours on this, a couple of hours on that. I mean, a standard physician's curriculum, they will come out with somewhere between two and four hours education on pain, for example. Now think about that. That is, that is such a persistent, omnipresent symptom. And yet, in the curriculum, they only have time for maybe two or four hours of pain education. And, and that's not sliding the educational system. There's just so much that needs to be covered. But what that means is many physicians, maybe they learned 10 years or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and they haven't had time to keep up on everything. And we also have to understand that half of all physicians are in the lower half of their graduating class. And and they're still called doctor. Yeah. So so you know again there's, there's what does this mean? This means that it is on us to become better educated ourselves in exactly. these areas. Exactly. We need to advocate for ourselves. <clears throat> yes, and we have to advocate for ourselves. Yeah. But what that also means is we've got to take that seriously and we've got all humans have massive cognitive biases and we have to learn to understand those and how they work in our own bodies and not get suckered into all of that crap that's out there about the medical quackery of it all.
and 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 that is important also yeah so you got to keep an open mind but not be so open-minded that your brain falls out exactly right <laughs> so 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 you know what what i mean here is is that your physicians your medical professionals who are dealing with hundreds or thousands of patients every year many of those patients you know half of them will also be below average right and real people lie and real people are lazy and real people are all those things right and and that's no knock on real people that's just how we are but what that means is you can't presume that your medical professionals are going to automatically trust you exactly to be that good advocate for yourself you have to demonstrate that you are going to be the good advocate for yourself we have to stay consistent too right yeah. you can't you can't just go in and say well i'm an advocate for my body and then six months later you're not advocating for yourself well you're you're giving mixed messages to your doctor as well right and and you know it can be really difficult uh, because this is not our field of expertise and it's a lot of extra work uh, but you know surprise if you if you get a a serious diagnosis that you're always going to have to live with now suddenly it really does behoove you to become educated in that area yeah. And also, and this is what your life lived well is about and what I do, it's not just about the, the medicine of it. It's that when you live with a chronic condition, there are going to be follow-on cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social effects. Being sick is going to change the way you see yourself and the way other people see you and all of these things and we need to be able to understand what's going on there and we need to build the bravery to have those difficult conversations and and keep our relationships and the rest of our lives moving forward in ways that are going to still give us that good, valuable, meaningful, pleasurable life that we want, even though we're stuck with something really bad that we got to carry along with us. Yeah. So before we get into the skydiving, how that all came yeah. about, I want to get into what your tea is. So each of the guests that come on Tea Time, they get asked this question, what is your tea? So what I'm looking for is a word for each of the letters, starting with those letters. And that is your tea that you serve to the world. So if I asked you, Kevin, what is your tea? What would your tea be? Oh, geez, I didn't know we were going to be playing word games. <laughs> T-E-A, uh, I, wow, I, my, my aphasia may just really kick in here. Uh, let me think about that and see if I can go back to it here in a bit, because I want to give you a good answer, but. Uh, it, it comes from within. It, it, it's like a okay. cup of tea. It spills. It, it, it doesn't need to make sense to anybody else but yourself. And that is your I, tea. 
for me for me my t is teaching educational awareness sure so good. For, for for you what would your t be those are not letters that i would choose so so that's that's okay i'm i i will choose not to be put into that box okay so we'll, we'll get into the sky and we'll, we'll get into the skydiving uh how did that come about and well as a little kid i wanted to become a skydiver i i, I saw a skydiver and this is in the 70s and and saw a skydiver at a little air show and uh, I thought, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. And, and you know, the, the curious thing about it was in the 70s, ram air parachutes, the rectangular parachutes that we all fly now, were new. And so they weren't like the big rounds that you'd see from like World War II era movies that just fell down out of the sky. You, you can fly a, a, a ram air parachute like a fixed wing glider. So you can swoop and dive and spin and do all that stuff. And I thought, wow, that's the most amazing thing. So after that, I was, you know, uh, I was climbing as high as I could and, and, and jumping off as, 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 as high as I thought I could probably survive. I was making my own parachutes and, and they always failed miserably, but I still survived. And, uh, and that was just something that, that, it was kind of core to what I wanted to do. I, I, I wanted to be a scientist and, you know, check. And that's what I did. And I love performing. And, and so I grew up performing. And, and I, I still spend a lot of time in front of people doing stuff. Uh, and I wanted to jump out of planes. And so in the 90s, when I was working on my doctorate, I, I thought I've waited long enough, and I found a drop zone a couple of hours away, a club drop zone. That's where you go skydiving at. And so I started taking the training. And back then, tandem skydives were still pretty new. They had been invented in the 80s. So that's not the way most of us started okay. back then. So you literally, back then, would go through all the training is like a day of ground school training and learn how to fly your body in space and learn how to fly a parachute. And then they would take you up in a, a small airplane and see ya. Good luck. See you on the ground. And, and that's what I did. I started with what are called IED jumps. So you go up in a little Cessna, climb out onto the, the wheel there and you're hanging onto the strut on the side of an airplane and your instructor grabs your pilot chute and pulls it out into the relative wind and you get yanked off the plane and there you are you're you're <laughs> then you're, you're you're free <laughs> that's right that's right you are as as free as you've ever been because suddenly and you're as alone as you've ever been because suddenly there is literally nothing around you miles of nothing and, and so I got a handful of jumps in, but it turns out that to become a skydiver, it's a lot more work than people think, because you have to learn two kinds of piloting. You have to learn how to fly your body in space as an airfoil, and then you have to learn how to fly your parachute. And 
So I got a handful of jumps in, but I couldn't do that and finish the doctorate at the same time. So it kind of had to go by the wayside. And then a lot of life got in the way and career, family, kids, you know, all that stuff. And then it was health. And so I came to a particularly nasty exacerbation with my MS one day, and I ended up paralyzed in the front lawn uh, on the ground uh, because I'd overdone myself trying to mow the lawn and thought I was being respectful, but wasn't, passed out from the, the pain. And, and I wake up and I'm paralyzed there and I'm looking up at this beautiful blue sky. And I had this errant thought in my head, wow, looks like a beautiful day to skydive. And then I laughed at myself and I said, I am paralyzed here on the ground. There is no way I'm ever going to fly again. Mm. And I gave up on that dream. And as my life came apart and, and my career exploded and my family exploded and uh, I, I got very, you know, things got very dark and I could no longer see a path from the life I had to a life I was interested in living. And before my son left, and because and my, my family decided that, that I was not going to get any better and this was not a journey they could continue with me. And so my wife and kids you know, left. And then uh, my son was the last to leave and he said shortly before that, you know, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And on the one hand, that's a funny, cheeky thing for a teenager to say. On the other hand, it's pretty soul-crushing because no dad wants to hear that from their mm -hmm. son. Uh, but I knew he was also right because I had spent so much time nursing his mother through a decade of cancer and trying to keep a roof over everybody's heads as the sole income for a family of four. And all the time my symptoms are getting worse and worse and worse and you know on the one hand i got all the training in the world i got a phd in people i knew what i should be doing but i did not know how to make the time for myself and i was slipping further and further behind in the spread in the press of everything so i said to myself i will give myself one more chance and I literally did mean this was my last chance I was giving myself. And I will rebuild myself with my science and I will save myself through skydiving. So many people come to skydiving because they want to overcome, say, a fear of heights. Yeah, that's what I <laughs> Yeah. I always thought that's what it was for, was somebody to beat that fear, right? Was jump yeah, out of a yeah, plane. Yeah. And a lot of people do. They, they, they come to that, especially if you're just going to do like a bucket list jump or something okay. like that. You know, you do a, a tandem skydive. So you, you are physically attached to an expert and you okay. are a passenger, right? And, and they're flying you and they're landing the parachute and doing all that stuff. You are just hanging out and enjoying a pretty lot, a pretty ride. It's skydiving mm -hmm. tourism. But if you're, if you're going to, uh, become a, a licensed solo skydiver, then there's, you know, a lot of training to it. And so I said, 
you know, I, I knew what I was, I was in for and it wasn't, and it wasn't a fear of height. That was my issue. Uh, uh, my issue was the thing I had become most terrified of in this world was my own body because my own body had betrayed me in so many creative ways over the years. And, and MS can be mentally and emotionally unrelenting. And because, because you are literally trapped in this body and watching it degrade over time. And, and that's not a pleasant place to live. Well, it's hard so, to watch your body take over, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, because most of us live with bodies where we are driving and our body does what we choose. But increasingly, with a condition like MS, you are not making the final decision in what you are able to do. Your mm -hmm. body is. And I said, okay. I have given up because living with a chronic condition can too often become this long, slow, sad slide of saying goodbye to the things that you loved about your life. And I'd given up on so many things. And I said, okay, I am going to do one thing just for myself. The first thing that I had done for myself in well over a decade, just for myself. Because I realized, you know, when my son told me that, you know, he was about 14 at the time, and he probably had never seen me do something just for myself. He probably really had. He, mm -hmm. He'd never seen that. So for me, it was, I'm going to go back and I'm going to become a licensed skydiver. So in 2019... Even with my wonky central nervous system, I said, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. So I went back. Fortunately, I've got a drop zone five miles from my house. Well, that's not too bad, eh? Yeah, which is great. Uh, and, and so I went and I redid the training and started from scratch. And I didn't tell them I had MS. And mm. because I thought they would say, don't do it. Just, yeah. you know, go, go try bowling instead. And that wasn't going to do it for me. And this was the childhood dream. So I didn't tell them. So I, I went up and I had some kind of sketchy skydives, but I was always altitude aware and I always managed to get stable and pull my own parachute on time. And those are kind of the minimum things that you have to do to be safe. So they kept going, but Normally, it takes someone 25 jumps to get their A license, which is the first license in skydiving. It took me 47. Wow. Because one of my symptoms is I can't feel my legs below my knees. And you have to be able to control your legs in free fall in order to stay stable and do what you want to do. And... I'm not getting good signals for my legs. So I went down after, after, a, after each student jump, you, you sit down with the instructor or instructors and, and 
they do a debrief on it. And after one of these jumps where my legs had been kind of sketchy, out of control, you know how, uh, have you ever seen uh, the movie, the uh, Captain Marvel, where, mm -hmm. where she comes back to Earth toward the end of the movie and she's flailing oh, out yes, of control? Yes, yes. And, okay, that was me. Literally, that was me. I've got it on wow. video. It was, and so, so we get down after that jump, and I'm, I'm, my instructor comes over and sits across from me, and she's got thousands of jumps. I mean, she's so good that she is certified to train other instructors. Okay, so, okay. so, and she, she sat down, she looked at me a little wild-eyed, and said, "That was the most terrifying skydive I've ever experienced. What's wrong with your legs?" So I explained to her, I can't feel my legs below my knees. And she said, what, were you hurt or something? I said, no, it's multiple sclerosis. And I explained to her everything. And she's like, oh. So fortunately, I mean, skydivers are, are very close knit. And mm -hmm. everybody, you know, kind of rallied around me. And we did extra training on the ground. And I spent a lot of time in vertical wind tunnels with instructors, right? So they could be right there on my legs saying, this is exactly how it should be. And so I couldn't feel what was going on below my knees, but I consistently get feelings at my knees. So mm -hmm. I learned how my tendons behind my knees feel based on what my leg is doing. Oh. So, so I had to learn to get creative. And just like learning to stand up a landing when you can't feel your feet. Well, I can't feel all the time when my feet touch the ground, so I had to learn to feel the pressure at my knees. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, with some creativity and some support, I managed to get my A license, and in 2019, I got my B license. I logged about 140 jumps. So in 2020, I said, I'm going to set myself a bigger goal. I'm going to become a legit skydiver. And what that means is completing all the licenses, getting more than 500 jumps, okay? And, and, and so I said, if I'm gonna do that in 2020, that meant I was gonna basically have to jump better than once a day for the entire year. And of course, with MS, one of the first things they tell you when you're diagnosed, you know this, is avoid stress. Yep. <laughs> so I'm gonna go, I'm going to literally dial my stress response up to 11 every day, jump out of an airplane, save myself, and then do it again the next day. And I'm going to do that for a year. Wow. And that's what I did. In 2020, I logged 370 jumps, which is a little better than once a, once a day for a year. And I got my coach rating along the way. And, and so I, I got to the point where I could be a legit skydiver and I can help other people learn how to skydive as well. And, and for me, that was reclaiming the childhood dream, but it was also, and I know you've seen like the cover on my book yeah. and, and this image, I love this picture. It's probably the favorite picture of me that has ever been taken and maybe always will be, but it was the exact image I wanted on the cover of this book because it tells the story of everything that I do. And so what does that mean? Okay, so I'm in street clothes here. I'm, I'm not in a jumpsuit, no helmet, none of that. 
I'm in street clothes and I'm at 5,000 feet headed wow. to earth at 120 miles an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> on this, on this beautiful evening with the sun on the horizon, the beautiful clouds and all that. So what does that mean? That means in real practical terms, when this image was taken, I was, my life expectancy was 27 seconds. If I do nothing at this point, unequivocally, without a doubt, I will die in 27 seconds. Wow. And what am I doing? I've got my hands up to my forehead like this. And that is a universal signal in skydiving. We go like this, we put our hands up like we're doing a double salute and we sweep them out broadly to the side and that's called the wave off. Oh, okay. And what I'm doing is I am warning everyone in my airspace that I am about to choose life because wow. I wave off and I deploy my parachute. That's powerful. So, and, and yeah, exactly. And that is the story of what I do because when you get a diagnosis like that, it, it can feel like the bottom has dropped out of your life. Yeah. And, and that's why I did it in street clothes and you know, all that, because I want to look like just a normal person off the street, you know, thrust into this extraordinary circumstance. And, and, and in the face of all that distress and certain disaster, I am choosing life. And that's where it begins for every single one of us. Every day in the face of the admittedly awful things that can come with life with a chronic illness, it begins by choosing life. And then we can work from there. So if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, Dr. Dr. Payne, how could they get a hold of you? They can go to yourlifelivedwell.co, dot co, your life lived well, and and that's the name of my podcast. That's the name of my book. That's the name of my company. That's the name of the curriculum of seminars that I do for not only those diagnosed and loved ones and caregivers, but I also spend a great deal of time training medical health, wellness, and support personnel how to not only do a better job dealing with those of us with chronic illness, but also to deal with the distress and the difficulties in their own lives and careers from facing that kind of unrelenting challenge. And, and we all know what burnout has done to the medical profession in the last yeah. few years. So any final words before we wrap up your tea time? This is an excellent adventure, and that's as close as I can get to tea for you. I like that. Oh, I like what you did there. <laughs> I didn't forget. He's, he did come back with his tea. So, so I, I want to really about it a little bit. It, 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 sometimes it does. It takes time to serve that tea, right? And that's what I do is I teach the education on, on tea. It's not the cup of tea that we serve. It's who we serve and what we do, right? 
And I, I really appreciate you coming back with that cup of tea and surprising me. So I want to thank you for joining me today on Tea Time and for all the viewers and listeners that are listening uh, on multiple different locations. And if you're watching a replay, push hashtag replay. And if you have any questions for Dr. Kevin J. Payne, let me know. I can refer them to him as well if you can't get a hold of him. And if you have any questions that you would like to get from Miss Liz, you are more than welcome to email me at bookiemissliz at gmail.com. I will be doing some shout outs for businesses in the future. So if you are looking to have your business shout out on a tea time or on the radio on my Sunday shows that are broadcast every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Canada RFM, you, you can do that as well. Now, I have a new tea time coming up on April 21st with Sarah Chicky from Canada, who will be sharing about the good bond mum boss who is a small entrepreneur who has a chocolate business, who also brings awareness to gender equality through her business for young girls out there. And then on the 28th, I have Donna Reason coming in, and that will be a special tea time because we will be doing something completely different on spilling her tea with her personal story of overcoming a lot of hardships in her life. So we will be doing a two-part with Donna Reason. We will be doing part one in april and i believe in july we will be doing part two so she will be doing a butterfly transfer so it'll be different it will be an incredible tea that you don't want to miss and dr dr Payne, thank you again for joining me today on tea time and being here in the studio with me and sharing your life and what you've done for anyone thank you has, so much miss liz be well not a problem and for anyone who has any questions at all please reach out and i will see you guys April 21st at 3 p.m. with a new tea time, and we will make a difference one cup of tea at a time. Thank you.